Testing. There you go. Let's go ahead. Whoop. Too far. Too far. Just leave. Just leave it up where the pulpit mic is at, so that they can turn it on and do the scripture reading. Thank you. 
Good well it works, right? But when it's not working, it's you know. Pop so so problem. It's 61 in here, so we're just going to make do on body heat. It is pushing on the fire. Is it running? Well, it's not turning on. It won't fire. It's firing up. Oh, it is? going out. Heat is going out? Okay. The heat lines, you know. Okay. They're kicking on. Okay. Dale says the heat is turning on, then turning off, then turning on, then turning off. We're going to need someone to get here to take a look at it. Who knows? Um, don't we have a guy's name on the furnace? Well, yeah. Uh, but I th we're going to call Adam, possibly. Uh, we could do that, too. Okay. And if he can't, we'll get some, we need to get someone down here this week because it's going to only get colder, not warmer, as the, uh, the time progresses. No, no, I have faith it's going to get colder. I, I want it to get colder.
Good morning. I'd like to welcome our visitors once again. I think we've seen you folks before, and welcome back. Uh, I would go over the announcements this morning, but <laughs> there aren't any. I have an update. Please. Um, I have an update on Brenda. Uh, Ashley stopped yesterday to get some food, and she said that Brenda's still in her coma. She is reacting to light and uh, some pain in her legs. Two weeks ago, she told Tom that she was done. She was ready to meet the Lord. Um, Lori's on her way, way down today, so I think we might be making some decisions early, maybe. Um, so if anybody wants to bring food, I'm in charge of that, and I can get it to them. So if Tom doesn't want to see anybody right now, he's not ready to talk to anybody. Um, also, Claire May is doing better. Her, okay. They're taking care of her wounds. Uh, the swelling's gone down, and uh, she's, she's feeling much better. Is the infection pretty well gone as well? No, they Okay, they just started the, the, uh, the program. I see. Okay. And thank the Lord that her sister in law, Donna, is helping out with She feels more comfortable with her taking. So. All right. And we see that Della is with us today. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful to have you with us again, Della and Ken. Uh, some of the other folks are, for whatever reason, are not here, and we would consider praying for them as well. Uh, we haven't seen the Bakers in a while. Uh, Brother Ken Jones has, has kind of been missing in action, so let's keep them in, in the back of our minds and the front of our hearts as we continue on. Um, I'm going to start the uh, program off today with a responsive reading taken from the Book of of Psalms, it will be out of the Red to Trinity, page 794, and it will be Psalm 31. <clears throat> when you get to that, would you please stand with us? Psalm 31, page 794. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Be my rock or refuge a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit, to thee, O Lord, to God's truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. For you saw my affliction and knew the anguish 
of my soul. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My life is consumed by anguish, and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction, and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. For I fear the slander of many. There is terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are May the Lord add his blessing to this holy and inspired reading. Brother Dale, would you lead us in opening prayer this morning? Please remain standing for our opening hymn. Good morning. Will you turn with me in the red hymnal to 457, please?
We have a congregational hymn that was chosen by Mr. Lewis this morning, and that's the Battle Hymn of the Republic, page 569 in the brown. 569 in the brown. have you remain standing for one more little segment here. Um, our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14, verses 1 through 23. Brother Dan, when you're ready. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts 
and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore, speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. When any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing in Israel separate themselves from me and set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. I will set my face against them and make them an example and a byword. I will remove them from my people. They will know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy, I, the Lord, have enticed that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear their guilt. The prophet will be as guilty as the one who consults him. Then the people of Israel will no longer stay, stray from me, nor will they defile themselves any more with any of their sins, with all of their sins. They will be my people, and I will be their God, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply, and send famine upon it, and kill its people and their animals, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could, only, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. Or if I send wild beasts through the country and they leave it childless and it becomes desolate so that no one can pass through it because of the beasts, as sure, surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword against that country and say, let the sword pass through the land, and I kill its people and their animals. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons and daughters. They alone would be saved. Or if I send a plague into that land and pour out my wrath on it through bloodshed, killing its people and their animals. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save neither son nor daughter. They would save only themselves by their righteousness. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beast and plague, to kill its men and their animals? Yet there will be some survivors, sons and daughters, who will be brought out of it. They will come to you, and when you see their conduct and their actions, you will be consoled regarding the disaster I have brought on Jerusalem every disaster I have brought on it. You will be consoled when you see their conduct and their actions, for you will know that I have done nothing in it without cause, declares the Sovereign Lord. And may the Lord add his continued blessing to this holy and inspired scripture. One more. Can you turn with me to 338 in the red hymnal, please?
is good, I think. Our scripture text this morning is found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14. As we move along in our series, Worship in the Heartland, we considered previously that worship for God's people is both obligatory and a privilege. Obligatory in the very real sense that God commands us to worship him. And we saw that the word means to bow down to his will, to honor him in what we say and do. So there's duty involved, among other things, and a missionary emphasis. In worship, we proclaim the God of the Bible to the nations, says Ezekiel. What information? What message? Well, we saw that we're to declare that God is creator. He is creator, whereas the idols of the nations never made anything. They just sit there. Instead, they are creations themselves made by human hands, thus very impotent. Secondly, that God is to be feared. The peoples of the earth are held responsible for their idolatry because God has borne witness to his glory and his person. We have it in creation and in special revelation through the scriptures. So that's number one. We're obligated to worship. Secondly, we saw that we are all also privileged to worship God. Privileged to worship God as creator. As human beings made in the image of God, we have the capacity to know God as the one who made us and is a safe guide through the pitfalls of sin and destruction. How unusual that is in our society, to worship God as the one who made us, that he's the creator. This is very basic stuff here. Thirdly, it's a privilege to know the creator as savior. Now that's more intimate, is it not? Not only as the one who made us, but the one who rescues us from our own sinful folly. Because we are lost and we need to be rescued. And then thirdly, we looked at the privilege to worship the Savior as judge. Now often we don't think of the idea of God being our judge as anything very comforting. But think about it. God the Father has committed all judgment to his Son, Jesus Christ. So if the judge is our Savior, if he's the lawyer pleading our case before the judicial bench, the outcome is one of joy and rejoicing, as we learn from Psalm 96. We have an advocate with the Father, John says. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You can't do any better than that. God's Son arguing our case before God the Father. Today I want to look a little closer at the not-so-obvious idolatry of sophisticated worshipers whose form of idolatry is idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. As we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. 
Our Lord, we do thank thee for the privilege of studying your word. We also thank you for giving us the word. Many pagan nations still today are locked into their pagan practice and so forth because they have no Bible. And the missionary endeavor has the responsibility, of course, taking the gospel to foreign lands. We pray that you will bless us with the truth of your word. Give us insight into it. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's talk a little bit about leaders who lead astray. A few weeks ago, I talked about blind guides, referring to the Pharisees, leading blind people into what is supposed to be spiritual enlightenment. But a blind guide, if you think about this, a blind guide is an oxymoron. Because if a person is blind, he cannot guide anyone. This is true not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. We would refer to such spiritual guides as teachers, right? Teachers. In so doing, we would expect that such teachers are themselves devoted to God, motivated by God to teach his truth to others, and in all of this, not only to model the correct example of truth and righteousness, but to promote, promote the God of these virtues. That's a teacher that would be a teacher for spiritual things. In Old Testament days, God spoke through the prophets, like Ezekiel. But he also ordained and used men of leadership skills, called elders, whose origin traces back to the days of Moses, when Moses was literally wearing himself out, counseling, adjudicating disputes between fellow Israelites. And God used Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, to solve the problem. The elders of Jeth Jethro said to uh, concerning Moses, the elders of Israel were tribal leaders, but Jethro noticed in particular about Moses himself this observation. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. This is in Exodus 13. And they stood round him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as a judge? While all these people stand around you from morning till evening. Moses answered him, Well, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me. And I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and God's laws. Now remember, this is a day that people don't have personal Bibles that they can read on their own. They come to Moses, and he, of course, understands and has written the first five books of the Bible. 
Well, Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. Hmm. Wow. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Exodus 18, verse 13 and following. Now Jethro's solution was to add judicial authority to the elders by assigning them the task of adjudicating less serious matters for the people. He says, select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, Moses. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. Exodus 18, verse 21 and 22. And it was these tribal heads, these spiritual guides, who came and sat down before Ezekiel, God's prophet, Moses being long time dead and gone by this time. They came to seek counsel from the Lord. And their great sin, as we discover, was their secret devotion. Verse 3, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Jethro's counsel to Moses. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Exodus 18, verse 19. But Moses is gone now. Ezekiel in this text is a later prophet. He said, therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. Ezekiel 14, verse 3 and 4. Now, all of this is a sad commentary on the spiritual leaders of God's people when, though they have not contracted with a metalsmith or a sculpture to cast or carve a visible material idol they nevertheless in secret are devoted to idols of the heart how clever but also how demonic can't see these idols but they're there there's no statue but they're there the apostle Paul gives at least one Name for this idolatry. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Colossians 3, verse 5. Greed, which is idolatry. Greed is covetousness. The desire to have more. Give me more. Give me more. 
give me more. We may see the effect of greed, but covetousness of itself is a secret idol of the heart. You can covet, no one would know it. It was the idol that brought Paul to his knees in humility and shame. We know this because of his own words. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive. I was alive apart from the law. Oh, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Romans 7, verse 7 through 9. What is he saying? He is saying it took the law of God to expose his sin. He's tripping along. He's feeling righteous, self-righteous, heads and tails above everybody else. I'm not a sinner like all the rest of you people. But then, as he worked his way down through the Ten Commandments, he got to commandment number 10, and commandment 10 said, Thou shalt not covet. And boom. Like a sword in his heart. Paul was convicted. In another text, Paul tells us of a time in his life when he boasted, As for zeal... I was a persecutor of the church. As for legitimate, legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Philippians 3, verse 6. I was faultless. Nobody could lay any charge against me. But his ego came crashing down the day God used the Tenth Commandment to expose his covetous, idolatrous The elders of Israel, their spiritual leaders, were leading the people astray by presenting to them their own idols of the heart. God determined to bypass his prophets in answering these men, choosing instead to address them directly. Very unusual. Verse 5. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have deserted me for their idols. The, the there is the elders' idols. No wonder James warns us, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly, James 3, verse 1. So false teachers have to account for leading people astray. But secondly... Those who imbibe idolatrous practice have to give an account for their idolatry. Verse 6 and following, therefore say to the house of Israel, not just the elders, but now he turns his attention to all of Israel. Say to the house of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Repent, turn from your idols, renounce your idols detestable practices 
when any Israelite or any alien living in Israel separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man and make him an example and a byword. I will cut him off from his people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 14, verse 6 through 8. You see, it isn't just the preacher whom God holds accountable, though we bear a stricter assessment. The people who hear are responsible for what they give their allegiance to. You're not just sit there purely innocent. You have a responsibility. Verse 10 says they will bear their guilt. The prophet will be guilty as the one who consults him. Wow. So what is God saying? He's saying, forget the finger pointing. You're both guilty. False prophet, people alike. The prophet for putting a stumbling block in the pathway of God's people. The people for tripping over something they're being warned about time and time again. No idolatry. No worship of any God but me. And you know what that, that tells me? That, that idolatry is subtle. Idolatry is a slippery slope. Once you head down the path of replacing the living sovereign Lord with lesser things, even things of your own imagination, your own will, your own passion, your own desires, it is a slope that often ends in the ruin of one's soul. So God issues a call to flee the idols of the heart. You know, historically, we've sent missionaries out and we hear their stories come back. Well, these people down here in the Amazon, they're worshiping a wooden stump in the woods. Or they're worshiping a certain fish that they catch. Or they're worshiping cows, as in India. We say, oh, how horrible. How horrible. These people are pagans. Yeah, well, what about all the times when we Americans worship idols of the heart? Paul gives a history of Israel. Here's what he says. They all ate the same spiritual food. Drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock which accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as an example to us. From setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, 
the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as an example and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the age has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Says Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and following. And in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry, which is Paul's conclusion. If we think we're, what he's saying here is, if you think you're exempt from idolatry, you need to think again. Just because you didn't carve some little thing out of wood or had the silversmith pour a little statuette out of silver or whatever doesn't mean that you can't have idols that you serve. You can have wrong thoughts of God, wrong images of him. Our world is full of idolatry. America is full of idolatry. But that doesn't mean people are sitting at home in front of a little statue. But they have idols of the heart. Misconceptions of God. Say, well, poor them. What do you expect? Well, I expect that they would avail themselves of gospel preaching that is everywhere found in our country. But they choose not. What are they doing today? Well, they're not in church. Or if they are in church, they're in churches that don't preach the gospel. Churches that pat people on the back to tell them how good they are and give them little doses, platitudes. There are lots of idols, and they're everywhere. For one, there is the idol of accommodation. This has been part of the philosophy of ministry in Christian circles for as long as I can remember, and it continues unabated, even escalating to new and wicked heights. What, what do I mean by the idol of accommodation? Well, it is the idea that to win the people for Christ, we have to dress like the world, run like the world, speak the language of the world, frequent the places of the world that they attend, Bring the world into our worship. All with the promise, or the premise rather, that we want unbelievers to see that we are, we're just like them. All come. Well, let me ask the question. Are we just like them? Did Jesus teach us that to win the world to faith and repentance, we should try to see how close we can maneuver to the precipice of hell without falling into it? 
Or did he command us to be salt and light to a world putrid with the stench of decay and death? A world steeped in darkness, which is ignorance and sin. Well, surely God taught the latter. But we know better, right? <laughs> we know that if our clothing matches what the world wears, if we have tattoos like the world, this is not the same as an aborigine. It's not like the hell's angels are going to visit us with tattoos all up and down their arms and so forth. As one godly person put it to me recently, we're running just one step behind the pagans. So we should realize that we do not have to dress up like a clown to minister to the circus. But this is going on all the time in Christendom, Christendom ad nauseum. These are the idols of accommodation. And then we pontificate God words and pious platitudes to friends through social media as though they cannot see the difference between genuine and bogus Christianity. Listen to Paul talking to the Jewish teachers of his day. Here's what Paul said. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples where the idols are? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You Jews that aren't living up to the principles of the faith. Romans 2 verse 19 and 12. Accommodation to the lifestyles, the goals, the aspirations, the methods, the practices of the unbelieving world does not win them to Christ. It causes them, it causes them to blaspheme Christ. How so? Well, because even a pagan knows the difference between the pure and the profane between the secular and the sacred, between loving God and loving the world. The pagan knows the difference.
when an unbeliever is in a bad way, when God brings sorrow and sadness and judgment into their lives because of sin, they do not go looking for their compatriots in sin for spiritual guidance and recovery. That's not what they do. No. They are looking not for a facsimile of a believer, a, a fake copy, but they look for someone who knows the truth and proves it by living the truth. In other words, they look for the genuine article. So my question this morning is, what false and lying message are you possibly transmitting to the watching world? Are you doing any better than the elders of our text, whose idols of the heart they place before the faces of the people? Beware of the idol of accommodation. You were saved out of the world system, but is the world system out of you? Jesus put it this way. No one, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Luke 9 Verse 62. That's the idol of accommodation. Looking back. Oh. It's like Lot's wife, right? Looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah. There was something back there. She was already regretting leaving. There is also, secondly, the idol of independent thinking. Pastor Tucker, whom we've had speak here many times, now with the Lord, he's with the Lord. But one of his favorite phrases was this, we are to think God's thoughts after him. Say, John, what what are you talking about? Think God's thoughts after him. It is a saying that makes clear that Paul, what Paul told the Corinthians about Christian ministry. What did he say to them? He said, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. What is Paul saying? He is saying that you and I, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are not permitted the luxury, can I say the sinfulness, of pretension or presumption. We do not get to make our own rules, choose our own paths, pick and choose from the word of God what we will or will not obey. No, our thoughts are captive to Christ's thoughts. This is the clear and definitive mark of being born of God, that we think God's thoughts concerning life. Say, where am I going to get that? From the book? From the book. That's what the New Testament is about. Sharing with us God's thoughts, in particular Jesus' thoughts. And conversely, 
What's the mark of the natural man? The natural man is the person that, you know, he hasn't been converted to Christ. We don't have to guess. Paul tells us. Mankind as we find him in nature, untouched by God, unenlightened by the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul writes. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Hmm. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The sinful mind, he goes on to say, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Romans 8, verse 5 and following. Sinful mind is like this with God's thoughts. They're at controversy all the time. There's no submission from the natural heart. And it is this propensity to independent, may I say sinful thinking, that Paul told the Corinthians he was out to demolish and to capture for Christ. What is the lead characteristic in the thinking of a person hostile to God? Paul tells us, that mind does not submit to God's law. God's law is the word of God. And the word of God is of moot influence to the natural mind. You can quote the Bible till the cows come home to an unbeliever and they go, oh, Oh, yeah, you're just a religious fanatic. They'd rather their lives were on to better things, selfish things, defiant things, things done the way they want them to be done, regardless of the consequences and regardless of God's warnings of danger, including apostasy. Even now, some of you might be arguing in your mind about some of the issues I've raised today to concerning dress and friendship, associations, and so on. These are viewed by you as my opinion and not God's word. Or you may cut me some slack by thinking, well, Pastor Luke means well, but he's just a little bit old-fashioned and behind the times. why some professing Christians stay home and avoid church altogether. They believe their own home Bible studies is as valid and as spiritually profitable as sitting under God's called ministers whom he has given to the church to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants tossed about by every wave, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Ephesians 4, 12 through 14. Brethren, it was the idol of independent thinking that caused Israel to forfeit the promised land. Let me say that again. It was the idol of independent thinking 
that cause Israel to forfeit the promised land. Very frankly, they didn't believe Moses. They didn't believe Aaron. They didn't believe Joshua. And most horrendous of all, they didn't believe God. Say, how do you know that? Well, because the writer of Hebrews tells us. Here's what he says. See to it, brothers, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called a day, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Since deceitfulness can say to you, I'm, I'm good with God. I'm good. I'm on, I'm on speaking terms. Everything's okay. The writer goes on, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end of the confidence that we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? That is such a sad, sad commentary on the Exodus. Who were they that rebelled? All those Moses led out of Egypt. What happened to them? Did they enter the promised land? No. They came right up to the door. And God turned them around and sent them back out to wander in the wilderness until they all died. The idol of independent thinking manifests itself as an idol of the heart. Satan convinces you that you know best how to pattern your life. Paul addresses the independent spirit of Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. you see any independence there? Or do you see sameness there? United in mind and thought? <laughs> you say that's impossible. Well, not if you're all capable Rather, it was captive to God's thoughts as revealed in the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about matters of indifference, which we all have. I like blue as my favorite color. Say, oh, no, I like red. 
I like this hairstyle. No, I like that. I'm not talking those, about those things. I'm talking about the essentials of the faith. There's the idol of independent thinking. There's also the idol of self-interest and self-satisfaction. This is the idol of the heart that fuels agenda. Why do you do the things you do? Why do you promote certain things? Why must you always push to get your way? Where's the humility? Where is the dedication to unity in the body and working together without manipulation? Why do you excuse certain sins in yourself that you would not tolerate in others? Jesus taught his disciples the number one ground floor, most basic principle of all for functioning in the body of Christ is this. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, verse 34 and 35. Two disciples, Peter and John, that were present on that occasion, wrote about the nature of this love in their books. Let me read it for you. Peter says, Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love... For your brothers, now that that's taken place, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Notice that such love, while deep and sincere, flows from an obedient and pure heart, says Peter. In other words, this love will not compromise either holiness or truth. If it does, then it's not the sincere love that Jesus commanded. That's Peter. Well, John is in concord with Peter. 1 John 5. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. Oh, we're back to that, are we? This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John 5, verse 2 and following. I want you to observe that Peter and John are singing the same song when it comes to defining love for God and love for the church. Such love is rooted in truth. It expresses itself in obedience to Jesus' commands. It evidences itself in overcoming the world. John put it this way, 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. Brethren, the world has it wrong when it says, in order to love others, you have to love yourself first. What a heresy. Self-love. 
the idol of self-interest is built on this lie. Divine love says, love is not rude. I'm reading scripture. Love is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. All of that from 1 Corinthians 13. Well, how do we do this? Paul told Titus, In everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who obey you may be shamed, oppose you rather, shall be ashamed of themselves because they have had nothing bad to say about you. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Titus 2, verse 7 and following. The word he uses here for example, example, very interesting it's a greek term it's the greek word tupas from which we get the english word type and it means the mark or the insignia left from the blow of a die i know george knows about dies from his mechanical days right george so many tons in some of these presses and and the blank sheet of Metal goes underneath the press and then the press comes down and in that particular fixture there's a die and boom. It leaves an insignia. It leaves a mark. Titus had the mark of Christ upon his ministry. As do all true believers. And as a teacher, his teaching was to exemplify, that is clearly show. He tells us integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. It was to evidence a clear protest, a no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It was to exhibit self-control, uprightness, since he, may I say we, have been stamped by Christ as his very own people whom he redeemed with his own blood. You have the mark of Christ in your life, brethren, if if you're a Christian. What mark is that? Can you guess? It's the Holy Spirit. 
Your body is a living temple of the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. The challenge to all of us, parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, elders, youth workers, deacons, all of us, you and I bear the mark of Christ's imprint. The stamp of a die is indelible. It's embossed in the metal. You can't wash it off. Right, George? I mean, it's stamped in the metal. It can't be scoured off with steel wool. It can't be eradicated by painting over it. The image will still shine through the paint. What you do as a professing believer will leave a mark on those that you instruct. You're responsible. You are responsible as a believer and a spiritual guide of others to leave no impression, no mark, no false rudiments of the world left over from your days of willful sin that denies, distorts, or inhibits the spiritual progress of those who look to you for the truth. Even in the area of Christian liberty, you may not make an imprint on a weaker brother that has the potential of destroying him. Say, well, I have my rights. You don't have a right to destroy another brother because of your liberty. Paul said, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Romans 12, verse 2. Liberties can be sacrificed for the sake of another. In fact, Paul says that. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. That's the serving attitude and heart. In closing, I would say that the idols of the heart are many, and they are diverse. I've only scratched on the surface, and I'm sure much more could be said. But one thing is true of any idol that you hold dear, be it the idol of accommodation, the idol of independent thinking, the idol of self-interest and self-satisfaction, or some other idol known only to you, God will not share your worship with your idols. Paul to the Thessalonians, the Lord's message rang out from among you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of 
reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from your idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8 and following. What's he saying? He's saying when the Thessalonians heard the gospel, they were converted in heart and mind. They did not bring their idols on the journey of life as the Israelites of old did. No, they turned to God from idols, physically and of the heart, to serve the living and true God, says Paul, realizing that Jesus alone could save them from the coming wrath. Not their little statues, not the Greek gods of the culture. Brethren, the idols of your heart can damn you, but they can't save you. And that's a fact. They can condemn you, but they cannot rescue you. How serious is this? Well, look at verse 13. Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it, and kill its men and their animals, and even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could only save themselves but by their own righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. Brethren, we ride to glory on the resurrected, living, and true God. But of idolaters... The scripture says, therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favor. I will not look on you with pity. I will not spare you. Ezekiel 5, verse 11. You can't worship God and idols together. Oh, you can try, but God says, I won't have any of it. What are our bodies? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So how we use them is viewed as God's worship. Be careful what you see. Little eyes used to sing as kids. Be careful little ears what you hear. Be careful, little lips, what you speak. And to the adults, it's a good message as well. Be careful that you live your life such a way as to glorify Christ who possesses you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. For these very pertinent blessings, we cannot accommodate the world. We cannot see how close we can get to the precipice of hell without getting burned. 
how close we can become worldly and still be called a child of God. Give us the ability to live a holy, sanctified, separated life. Because the world is watching, they already have all the putrid things that are found in the world, the sexuality, the love of money, the pride of heart, all the various things. They already have those things. So if they see those things in us, there's nothing there to point them to change that they would desire. But let us live holy lives. Let us show what God can do in a person's life, what he has done in our lives, that we're not of the world, we're out of the world, called from it, Jesus says, called to be his disciples. Give us that heart, that obedience. And if we wonder why our friends and family are not being saved, maybe we need to look no further than our own behavior. I'm praying this morning, Lord, forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive us all for the bad messages that we send. Mixed messages. No wonder the world is confused at times as to what constitutes a Christian. Some of the stuff that they see on TV they, and they wonder why <laughs> that's not any different than going to a rock concert. What's the difference? Lord, we need to give a true picture of who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Forgive us where we have failed. Help us to do better by the empowerment of your spirit. May we be attuned to your word. We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. For our closing hymn, let's sing 591 in Trinity. That's the red hymnal. Please stand with me.
Just a word about Brenda. Uh, she is in intensive care at the hospital. No visitors, so don't even try. And even of the family, only one family member can go visit her per day. So that's pretty strict. She had surgery. They opened the skull. It was Her brain was swelling. They opened the skull to drain off the excess fluid. She's recovering from that, but she is in a coma. I think it's uh, an intentional coma that they put her in. So give her body time to recoup. But continue to pray for her and pray for Tom. He has such a sweet spirit about this. Trusting the Lord. Uh, just super Christian heart from a husband that knows that his wife sick as she is, is in the hands of God. And whatever comes, Tom is at peace about it. But I would pray for him and encourage you to pray for him and Ashley and David, the whole family, Lori. The Lord will sustain them. And if in his mercy he would raise Brenda back, uh, that would be a, a great occasion for us to rejoice. Our Lord, we just thank you and praise you for your, your grace and goodness to us. You've given us life and health, and here we are today, able to come, to gather together and worship you. But we have people today, thinking of uh, Brenda and, of course, Clara May as well, struggling with health issues. You haven't deserted them. You have indeed been their God all this, all this time, and you're still their God and their Savior. And whatever comes their way, your hand is in it, and we can see that. Give us the grace to accept it. Give them grace to accept it. And we do pray, Lord, that you will bless with healing, if that's your will to restore them to us in good health. Give us a good week for you this week. Help us to live for you, not to deny in our behavior in any way what we affirm with our lips. May we live the gospel in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed.